Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. What's cracking, everyone? Hope you're very well. It's another Friday around here. We are gearing up for a busy weekend with our kids, after which I am off to Lisbon for a week, which I'm excited about, to attend the Web Summit event and also conduct a couple of interviews myself, which is always fun and also honestly terrifying given the size of the audience. They pack something like 20,000 people into an arena over there where they host these main stage talks. And really, the only blessing when it comes to looking out on a crowd that big is that you really can't see anything. It's just lights in your eyes and you go. I often feel like throwing up for the first 45 minutes. I'm sure a lot of people feel exactly the same way. I'm basically trying to stay more focused right now on socializing around the fringes of the event. With any luck, I'll have some juicy gossip to share with you when I get back. We'll see. And now on to this week's interview with James Courier, a five-time founder, an angel investor in DoorDash, Lyft, and Patreon, and a founding partner at NFX, an early-stage venture firm that's focused on network effects. Before becoming an investor, Courier was the co-founder and CEO, most notably of the dot-com era company Tickle, which was an online self-testing and social networking company that was acquired by the jobs giant Monster back in 2004. We wanted to talk with Courier because he's really focused at the moment on generative AI, which has become a super buzzy term of late in Silicon Valley circles. You've probably heard of or even toyed with generative AI perhaps playing with an image generator that lets you conjure within seconds a picture based on a string of words, like a parrot made of carrots. Obviously, it's not a new concept. And like many of you, we've been wondering what changed exactly to make all this stuff so interesting so suddenly to so many people. Given that Courier has bets on what he calls generative tech and that he plans to make many more, we figured he was a good person to provide us with an overview here, and we figured correctly he was very patient with us. We learned a lot. We hope you will, too. But first, the news. Elon Musk has formally taken the reins of Twitter, and reactions to the news have run the gamut. Last night, Musk proudly tweeted, The bird is free to which Mark Benioff, founder and co-chairman of Salesforce, almost immediately replied, the bird is fried, including a picture of a plate of fried chicken with his tweet. Benioff, it should be noted, runs Salesforce with Brett Taylor, who until yesterday was Twitter's chairman. Donald Trump, of course, was smug. In a post on his fledgling Truth Social service, he said, I am very happy that Twitter is now in sane hands and will no longer be run by radical left lunatics and maniacs that truly hate our country. Meanwhile, a top European Union official, Thierry Breton, warned Musk to make sure Twitter's content complies with the EU's newly minted Digital Services Act, which attempts to regulate social media content. In Europe, the bird will fly by our rules, Breton tweeted. In a message to advertisers, Musk pledged that Twitter would not become a, quote, free-for-all hellscape, and tweeted today that, quote, no major content decisions or account reinstatements will happen before a content moderation council with widely diverse viewpoints convenes. The implication seemed to be that Twitter would not change radically in the near future. Nevertheless, 
Brandon Borman, Twitter's former head of communications, tweeted that Musk's idea for a content moderation council was, quote, really ill-suited to a platform where content moves at the speed of Twitter, end quote. And Musk's decision to fire not only Twitter's CEO and CFO, but its general counsel and head of legal policy, trust, and safety undermined Musk's message that Twitter is a safe place for advertisers. As if on cue, GM announced tonight that it is suspending its advertising on Twitter while it works to, quote, understand the direction of the platform under their new ownership, end quote. Although this may not be such a great surprise given Musk runs Tesla, a GM competitor. Will Elon be able to turn Twitter around? Will he reinstate Trump? Will Thierry Breton and the EU clip Twitter's wings? Stay tuned to this channel for the next edition of As the Twitterverse Turns. As some readers of the newsletter might know, as part of a climate tech summit, I recently talked with famed investor Chris Saka of Lower Carbon Capital about why he's all in on climate tech investing. I really enjoyed the talk. Saka is a proven investor and a spicy interviewee who doesn't shy from F-bombs or other colorful language when talking about his work, or as is sometimes the case, his detractors. When I saw that he turned up for an interview with Axios this same week, I was curious to watch the sit-down. For one thing, Saka was sitting down with Dan Primick, a one-time colleague of mine who I'm really fond of and who is a better interviewer than a lot of us who sit behind a computer and type away every day. I'm also somewhat competitive, and I wanted to see how similar or dissimilar the interviews would be. You know, would Dan ask a question that I should have, etc.? As it turns out, the interview was in many ways very close to my own with Saka. He definitely has his talking points, which, by the way, are very compelling talking points. But he did veer into new terrain in a pretty unexpected way. Specifically, he let it be known publicly how he feels about Matt Mazio, the one-time CAA agent who Saka hired to help him run his previous venture firm, Lowercase Capital. It was a little out of left field. He was discussing product market fit on stage, explaining that with social media, it's not always straightforward. Twitter was a, quote, great app, he said. Note here that Zaka was among Twitter's earliest investors. But Lowercase also funded the startups Dub Smash and Triller, which Saka described as, quote, TikTok, but they didn't work. There's no reason they didn't work. They just didn't become TikTok. Here, Dan kiddingly interjected, saying, there's a reason Triller didn't work. Then Saka dropped the bomb. He responded, quote, there were some reasons, but it was an old partner of ours who was underwhelming who did those deals. Fuck it. End quote. That old partner is Mazio, who joined the investment firm Co2 in 2018 and recently left to start his own fund. We reached out to Mazio yesterday to see if he was aware of the exchange and didn't hear back. But I'm sure some in the audience who caught the mention were probably a little taken aback. In the world of VC, everyone is best friends and gets along famously. Except, of course, that they don't because people are complicated and VCs especially tend to be alpha types who would throw their mother under the bus if it meant outperforming VCs at other firms or even inside their own firms. I don't mean all VCs, of course. You're probably delightful, but some VCs. Either way, it felt like a catty remark for Saka to make. And you have to wonder what went so wrong between the two that he made it. On the other hand, honesty in this business is highly elusive, and a lot of Saka's appeal centers on his straight shooter persona. So the slight, while surprising, was on brand. Now we're just curious to see if there's any more to come on this front. Up next, our interview with James Courier of NFX. But first, a word from our sponsor. Sponsor. 
Voban makes it easy for you to raise capital from your network to invest in private companies. Set up your fund, raise capital from your LPs, issue capital calls, and more. All from Voban's easy-to-use online platform. Over 500 funds and syndicates have onboarded more than 7,500 investors and invested over $2.5 billion using Voban's technology. Whether you're an angel managing a syndicate, an investment manager putting together an SPV, or a VC firm looking to manage your LPs, Voban has you covered. Check out Voban at voban.io today. That's V-A-U-B-A-N dot I-O. James Courier, I'm so happy to be talking to you because I am really confused along with a lot of other people about generative AI, including how new exactly it is or whether it's just become the latest buzzword. So maybe we can start with a definition of what generative AI is. Sure. Thanks for having me on. So in my role as a venture capitalist, we've been following this for a long time. And in my role as a founder before that, for about 15 years, I was involved in it where we were developing things like Second Life and other things where we were looking at generative tech and what was going to happen there. And it was always too early. And what I think has happened to the AI world in general is that we had a sense that we could have deterministic AI, which would help us identify the truth of something. Is that a broken piece on the manufacturing line? Is that an appropriate meeting to have where you're determining something using AI in the same way that a human determines something. And that has largely been what AI has been for the last 10 to 15 years, where there have been some software successes, some company successes. Those algorithms have been known for 20, 30 years, and they're working. The other sets of algorithms in AI were more these diffusion algorithms, which were intended to look at huge corpuses of content and then generate something new from them saying, here's 10,000 examples. Can we create the 10,000 and first example that is similar? And those were pretty fragile. Those were pretty brittle up until about a year and a half ago. And the algorithms have gotten better, but more importantly, the corpuses of content we've been looking at have gotten bigger because we just have more processing power. So what's happened is these algorithms are riding Moore's law, storage, bandwidth, speed of computation, and have suddenly, at this point, been able to produce something that looks very much like what a human would produce, meaning the face value of the text that it will write, the face value of the drawing it will draw, looks very similar to what a human will do. And that's all taken place in the last two years. And so it is new. It's not a new idea, but it's newly at that threshold where it's recognizable as nearly human. And that's why everyone looks at it and says, wow, that's magic. That's like something I've never seen before. I'm amazed. And then there's the excitement that we're getting from it. James, when you talk about this change of a year and a half ago, and you mentioned processing power, is that the technological infrastructure or piece that was missing? I'm just wondering, even if it's just basically compute power, again, what changed a year and a half ago? It didn't change suddenly. It just changed gradually until the point where quality of its generation got to a point where it was meaningful for us. 
So the answer is generally no. The algorithms have been very similar. In these diffusion algorithms, they have gotten somewhat better, but really it's about the processing power. And then about two years ago, we had GPT-2 come out, which was an on-premise type of calculation. And then GPT-3 came out where they would do it for you in the cloud because the, the data models were so much bigger. They needed to do it on their own servers instead of letting you having it resident. You just couldn't afford to do it. And at that point, things really took a jump up. And we know that because we invested in a company doing AI-based games, generative AI games called AI Dungeon, which I think at one point was the vast majority of all GPT-3's computation was coming through AI Dungeon. And so we have been watching this on a weekly, monthly basis for the last two years with this company, which is called Latitude or Voyage out of Salt Lake City. A bunch of PhDs in AI have been working on that. And so that's really the change is that it's suddenly amazing to ask a question of the AI and it responds back in something that looks like some human just wrote it in two seconds. And when that took place, that's when you had AI Dungeon. That's when you had hundreds of thousands of millions of people using AI Dungeon to generate adventures in the D&D world and, uh, and it's a profitable company and that whole thing. So we tipped in terms of its quality, but that tipping took place on a curve, Connie. It wasn't a sudden change. Does AI Dungeon then require a smaller team? What are the practical advantages of relying so heavily on this technology? That's one of the big advantages, absolutely. They don't have to spend all that money to house all that data, and they can, with a small group of people, produce gaming experiences and tens of gaming experiences, which all take advantage of that. And the idea there is that you're going to add generative AI to old games, so your non-player characters can actually say something more interesting than they do today. But really, you're going to get fundamentally different gaming experiences coming out of AI into gaming versus adding AI into the existing games. But the other big change, other than the quality, guys, is that OpenAI wasn't really open, right? They generated this amazing thing, but then it wasn't open. It was very expensive. And so groups got together like Stability AI and other folks, and they said, let's just make real open source versions of this. And at that point, the cost dropped by 100x just in the last two or three months. Okay, so the big change that's happened in the last three to six months has been the price reductions. So the quality came up about a year and a half ago, and then the price reductions occurred in the last three to six months. And now you have the Cambrian explosion of applications on top of these AI models, which is why we call it generative tech, not generative AI, because it's about the tech. It's about the software that lets you do stuff with the model. The business isn't investing in the AI. It's investing in the things that you can do with the AI. So in that sense, it's like biotech or prop tech or fintech. It's more generative tech. James, if all of these new applications are built on the same platform, OpenAI, GPT-3, how much differentiation does that allow? The first point is that it's not all built on OpenAI. There are now these new organizations that have come out and really made it open source. Right, but aren't those offshoots of OpenAI? They're all doing the same thing. They're all using very similar algorithms. They're all using similar corpuses of either text data or visual data to produce a similar result. And you're going to see a proliferation of these models that compete with OpenAI. And you're probably going to end up with five or six or eight or maybe a hundred of them. And then on top of those will be built unique AI models. So you might have an AI model that really looks at making poetry or AI models that really looks at how you make visual images of dogs and dog hair. Or you'll have one that is really specialized in writing sales emails. 
And so you're going to have a whole layer of these specialized AI models that will then be purpose-built. And then on top of those, you'll have all the generative tech, which will be how do you get people using the product? How do you get people paying the product? How do you get people to sign in? How do you get people to share it? How do you create network effects? And so therein is going to be the defensibility as uh, to your question, Alex. You're going to need both embedding and network effects. So if you look at the four ways of defending your business in the digital age. And if you go to nfx.com, you can see articles about defensibility and these four different defensibilities. The two that are really available to startups are embedding, like an Oracle or a Workday where they embed their software into your operations. And it's very hard to rip them out. So they stay there. They're defensible. And then the other one, which is obviously better and bigger, is to do network effects where the more people use your product, the better. And so this is where the application layer is going to develop network effects and embedding on top of the AI models because the AI models are going to be quite similar. And as I said, their quality will asymptote. GPT-3 was really a lot better than GPT-2. We'll see what GPT-4 looks like, but I don't know how much closer to Hemingway's writing it's going to be able to get. It's already getting pretty close. And so the differentiation of the AI models will diminish while the differentiation of the applications, the generative tech, will increase and they will be pursuing network effects. James, where would you place Facebook's BlenderBot 3 AI chatbot in the generative AI universe? Is it a generative AI platform? And if so, doesn't that suggest that a lot of these generative AI technologies are hard to control? It is in the generative tech area and they are going to be hard to control and we are going to have to build layers on top of them. We know for a fact that the GPT-3 model generates a lot of porn and child porn and other sorts of things if left to its own devices. And so if you want to use that for a consumer application, you need to build layers on top of it that allow it to be controlled. How is that possible if platforms like Facebook can't control user-generated content? If you have a supercomputer generating content at a massive scale, it seems like it would be almost impossible to rein that in. No, I think, I mean, look, you could start with just putting hard filters on it, right? You would just disallow a long list of phrases or words as a way of, of reining it in to start and then maybe opening it up incrementally from there. I think there's lots of methodologies to try to rein that in. I mean, it's hard to rein in humans. And with humans, you just put hard stops on some things that they can and can't say as well. And then you give a delay. I mean, if you look at live TV, they have a delay on it so that the sensors can block it. And you might start seeing the same thing with this for a time while we figure out better algorithms and better monitoring technologies. But look, we're in the early innings. Like I said, these things have really only become good in the last 18 months and we're just early in the process. And now that they're widely available for cheap and you're going to have tens of thousands of entrepreneurs coming up with new applications, you are going to start seeing some things that will get a lot of press and get a lot of clicks and everyone will be aghast and and whatnot, but those things will be reined in quickly. And like with most technology evolutions, we'll end up improving our monitoring of it over time. That's my guess about where it goes. And because it's actually a piece of software, it's easier to control than humans are, frankly. Sam Lesson of Slow Ventures recently posted that generative AI is the narrative that has clearly backfilled for crypto, metaverse, self-driving, instant delivery, etc. hype in the last month or so. And he believes it's not an investable trend because in his view, the big wins are always differentiated network distribution, not content creation. And one example that he points to is a company that creates 
personalized advertisements for users. He says, if you look at something like that, it's always the media companies, the advertising platforms that make money off of that. How would you respond to the criticism that the network and the distribution are really the key for making money in generative AI? Oh, I don't think that's a criticism. I think that's exactly what I just said, which is it's the application layer where people are going to go after the distribution and the network effects where you're going to make the money. So Sam and I are aligned on that. I think that saying that there aren't going to be any investable companies that come out of using this technology to get an advantage in the market. I think one of his, going to be- sorry to interrupt, but I think one of his points was that large companies will be able to incorporate this technology into their networks, but that it will be very hard for a company that doesn't have that advantage to come out of nowhere and make money. Well, anybody who says something is hard to do is going to be right more than they're going to be wrong. So it only takes a coward to say something isn't going to work because most things don't work. I think what you're looking for is something like a Twitch where YouTube could have integrated that into its model, but they didn't. And Twitch created a new platform and a valuable new part of culture and and value for the investors and the founders, even though it was hard. And so you're going to have great founders who are going to use this technology to give them an advantage, and that will create a seam in the market. And while the big guys are doing other things, they'll be able to build billion-dollar companies, and I have no doubt about that. James, you mentioned AI Dungeon. How much time are you spending thinking about generative tech, and what other companies have you invested in that you might share with us? Sure. I'm spending a lot of time in generative tech. And one reason is because we have had a drought of really interesting consumer apps for the last 10 years, right? The low-hanging fruit that the internet and mobile provided was grabbed by 2011, 2012. Some, a lot of it rolled out in the last decade, but in terms of seed stage investing, it all was done by 2013 with, with DoorDash and, and whatnot, but Uber and Lyft and everything had already come before that. Snap had started. So there's been very little consumer activity actually in the last decade. And it's been a little bit boring. And so what I'm excited for is I think that generative tech can, at least for the next 24 months, provide an opening for great founders to, as I say, find seams and find differentiated experiences. And we might be able to create some new things for consumers that will produce big, important companies. So I've been spending quite a lot of time because I love consumer and and almost all my companies for the first 15 years when I was finding companies were consumer companies and consumer media companies. And so it's exciting for me to dive back in. We've also invested in some B2B applications other than Latitude slash Voyage. One's called Darrow in the legal tech space. And the generative AI looks at a corpus of complaints from consumers and finds potential cases and generates new ideas for cases for lawyers to do consumer protection. And rather than finding old cases, it generates specific new ones, just like you would generate a specific new image that then the lawyers can look at these and say, nah, that's not a good idea, or that is a good idea. And then they can pursue those things. We've, we've got another company, again, in the B2B space in the prop tech area where generative tech is generating new floor plans for homeowners looking to perform renovations. And the plans are generated from photos and plans taken from the web and then integrated with remote 3D measurements to generate new versions for the space. And these generated plans are great starting points. And then the owners and the designers can choose from them. And it really speeds the process and gets applications done faster. And it's been very useful for actually large apartment owners who, let's say they own 100 apartments or 1,000 apartments. This helps them 
renovate this old building stock at scale. And so we're using it there. And then we've got another company called the.com, which has got a platform for generating websites. And there's two different ways in which the system generates the various websites. And as you look at the old and creaky WordPress and the infrastructure that most of the web is built on from a website perspective, you're going to see some real changes in how the web is built over the next three, four, five years. And I think this is going to be a big part of it. So that's over at the.com. So yeah, we've been investing in this for two years and continue to make more. Those all sound really interesting. And yes, anything that replaces WordPress. I love Matt Mullenweg, but <laughs> it's overdue. It's interesting your phrasing because you describe all of these as tools that will help the industries in which they operate. The New York Times had a piece, I think earlier this week, with a handful of creatives, including an ad executive, a filmmaker, an interior designer. And they also seem to suggest that the generative AI apps that they're each using in their fields are tools in a broader toolbox, like a better sketch app, or a design partner who's writing better ideas, or at least faster ideas. I just wonder, are people being naive here? Are they at risk of being replaced by this technology? Your AI dungeon company is smaller, which is obviously good for the company, but you know, potentially bad for developers who maybe would have worked there otherwise. Yeah. So it's an interesting question for sure. And I think with most technologies, there's an uncomfortableness that people have if a robots replacing a job at an auto factory. When the internet came along, a lot of the people who were doing direct mail felt threatened that the companies would be able to sell direct and not use their paper-based advertising services. There will be changes indeed, but it also feels like marketers who are using paper in the 90s the sooner they embraced digital marketing or digital communication through email, they probably had tremendous bumps in their careers. Their productivity went up, the speed and efficiency went up. Same thing with credit cards online. We didn't feel comfortable putting credit cards online until maybe 2002, but those who embraced that in 2000, 2002, 2003 did better. And I think that what's happening is the writers and the designers and the architects, those that are thinking forward and embracing these tools to give themselves a 2x productivity lift, 3x, 5x, I don't know what it's going to be, are going to do incredibly well. And so I think the whole world is going to end up over the next 10 years seeing a productivity lift, efficiency lift, the quantities will go up of different creations, curation will go up. There'll be all sorts of new roles created, particularly around curation and trust making and integrating because there'll be so much more generated than there was before. So I, I think it's a huge opportunity for 90% of people to just do more, be more, make more, connect more. Also, I'm wondering as an investor who obviously sees these cycles where things were incredibly overvalued because a lot of people were converging on the same companies at once. Because generative AI is kind of buzzy right now, how are you thinking about valuations? Last week, Jasper, this Austin, Texas-based startup, its generative AI platform auto-generates promotional blog posts and other marketing materials, raised $125 million in Series A funding at a post valuation of more than a billion dollars, which seems like a lot for what it's doing. Is there a way to avoid this? Are you thinking about trying to incubate some of these companies yourself? Or how do you avoid what is predictably going to happen, which is that a lot of VCs are going to start overbidding on these companies? Yeah, it's a good question. We're a seed investor. 
I think we might be the largest seed-only fund in the world. We just focus on putting in one to three and a half million dollar checks into very early stage companies. And so when we talk about something like Jasper, that's not the type of investment that I make. And so I can't tell you if it's rational or not. What I can tell you is that Jasper has grown their revenue tremendously fast and is now moving into the phase where they're trying to create embedding and network effects. And if they're capable of doing that, then you end up with a very big, interesting SaaS company who could maybe, as the AI models evolve and switch around, be a platform network effect business for that. So I can see a path, even though I don't know too much about their business, to where that could be an interesting type of SaaS business providing software to businesses around the world. I don't know if the valuation is too much or too little, but it, it doesn't seem crazy to me that you could create something important there. And in terms of how we manage the valuations, the valuations were so crazy last year, they've come down 50% at seed from our perspective and have stabilized as we go into generative tech. There are going to be so many companies. I think we saw maybe 18 companies in the last four weeks that are doing new ways of helping you code better like Copilot on GitHub. And so for venture people to choose between them will be hard because there's so many different ones that I think that might suppress the valuations because it's so consensus. And look, with most technology rollouts, they roll out slowly. Remember, Apple didn't allow app development on their platform for 18 months after they launched. And it wasn't necessarily consensus that you had to move all your web applications to mobile at that time. Okay. And so for those people who did go all in on mobile for the next 24 months, they got a big advantage because 80% of the people weren't competing with them at that time. Same thing with web. When the internet came out, it was not consensus. Maybe by 2000, there was maybe 4,000 companies on the web, but there were still 40,000 software companies doing on-premise software at that time because it wasn't consensus. The challenge with generative tech at this point is that it's consensus, as you say. So another way of saying what you just said was, it's a consensus idea where all the VCs are into it, the founders are into it, things are growing really quickly. And so we're going to have a very rapid Cambrian explosion. They're going to have all sorts of bets being made, and very few of them are going to get big. And people looking at the venture world criticize that most of them will fail. And I don't see that as a criticism because that's the nature of what we do. That's why we have a portfolio effect. And that's why we're looking for the bigger outcomes. And the valuations might tick up as at all stages, you just have to be very careful that you're investing in something that's going to be able to be defensible long-term and that they have a plan to do that. And that's what we look for. And so we're always very frugal. We always lead our deals. We always try to set the price with the founders and then add more value than anybody else. And hopefully we'll get 20, 30% discount to their other offers. And, and hopefully that'll give good returns for the founders and it'll give good returns for our fund. But it is going to be a crazy next 12 months in this space for sure. Are you looking for anything in particular here at the seed stage then? I mean, obviously you can only know so much about a company's trajectory at the stage where you're investing. We're looking for technical teams who rapidly iterate. Because the underlying AI models are changing so quickly, you have to stay up on that on a daily basis. We're looking for teams who rapidly iterate around their growth tactics, because if you can build a network effect and then grow more quickly, then you'll get ahead and stay ahead. And we're looking for people who understand how to build embedding into their products. That's so it sounds like for. people who understand these things are probably likely to be serial entrepreneurs. They could be, or they could just be young, fast technical teams who have spent the last three, five, six, eight months educating themselves about the state of where we are. You don't even have to have been doing it a long time because it's all so new. What you knew about this four years ago isn't super helpful. So it's an open field. It's a wonderful moment. Look, every 14 years, we get one of these Cambrian explosions. 
right? We had one around the internet in 94. We had one around mobile phones in 2008. And now we're having another one in 2022, right? It's sort of a, a metronome in terms of when we have these explosions. James, your website has some really great information about generative AI, generative tech, and you have a section where you list potential applications. And it's a very, very long list. Avatars, photo sharing, video streaming, legal services, angel and VC investing, et cetera. Are there any specific areas where you're really drilling down? It's a great question. And you know, having founded four venture-backed companies myself, I have had to unlearn the tendency to want to try to build or decide myself. And so now that we've been running this venture firm for five years, I've really learned to let the founders come up with the ideas and then me just receive, right? So we have the door swinging in. We look at 8,000 companies a year. We invest in about 30 or 40 and we let them come up with the ideas. So I can imagine in various ways where this generative tech is going to impact industries that exist. Obviously, I'm very hopeful that new consumer interests and new business needs will be created because that's always the real open running is not to just do a generative tech CRM, but to do something that no one's ever seen before. And so I'm hoping that, that those ideas come from the founders, not from me, but it's a great question. And I, I try not to intend too much what people should be doing. We do summaries of companies that have received funding every day in the newsletter, and we often see machine learning and AI mentioned in the descriptions of what companies do. Are you trying to alert your existing portfolio companies to generative AI and try and introduce those concepts to companies that you've already funded? Yes. And I think that as Sam Lesson points out, a lot of these generative tech ideas are going to be incorporated by the incumbents, including some of our seed and series A startups, uh, or maybe some of our companies that we invested in three years ago now at Series B, and they would uh, include them. I think everyone needs to be looking at it. I mean, look, companies like Adobe are really in danger at this point, right? I mean, things could really change for them. There's so many different AI models out there, like AI21 in Israel, or Anthropic is another big one that Eric Schmidt and others have funded. And of course, you know about OpenAI and Stability AI, but there's going to be so many ways to plug into this change for both incumbents and new companies that, yeah, everyone's going to be looking at it over the next 24 months. James, I want to let you go, but I am curious. We've talked about how much more expensive open AI is and how it's created this desire for these other platforms to emerge and become more competitive on price. And it seems like that strategy is working. Do you think open AI has made some missteps here that it should be opening the kimono more than it has I mean, obviously, it's cloud costs are extreme, but it's got this partnership with Microsoft. I don't know. I mean, the leader ends up behaving differently than the followers. I'm not inside the company. What I do know is there's going to be a big ecosystem of AI models. And it's not clear to me how an AI model stays differentiated as they all asymptote toward the same quality. And it just becomes a price game. It seems to me that Google Cloud and AWS are the ones who are going to win because we're all just going to be generating stuff like crazy. Because not only am I going to go as a consumer or as a business and press the generate button, but I'm going to have things like the.com where somebody will change something in the database and it'll kick off the creation of a new website and that website will then be generated. And so you're going to have all sorts of calls back to Google Cloud and AWS to do some processing to generate more stuff. And it's going to be interesting. But on the other hand, it might be that OpenAI ends up moving up or moving down. Maybe they become on AWS themselves, or maybe they move up and they start making specialized AIs that they sell to certain verticals. I think everyone in this space has got to have an opportunity to do well if they navigate properly, but they're going to have to just be like, like in all ages of, of business, they're just going to have to be smart about it. 
James, I feel like I learned a lot. I'm so glad we talked. Oh, well, thank you for having me. It's always good to talk to you guys. Truly, it was a pleasure, and I feel better informed about what's happening, and appreciate your time very much. Thank you, and we'll talk soon. That's it. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to our sponsor, Voban. You can check them out at voban.io. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you back here next week.